we say to people, you know, personal boundaries, you should learn to say no. And all those things are true and you should learn to say no. But guys, if that's your whole wellness program is the individual person on the ground saying no, that's a craptacular wellness program. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. So welcome back to a new season of Blunt Dissection. This is going to be episode 60. Wowzers. We are over a quarter of a million downloads and plays. So first thing I want to say is a huge thank you to all of you for listening and supporting the show, which continues to go from strength to strength. And in that vein, it gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, none other than my good friend, Dr. Andy Rourke. Back for an episode two. If you want to listen to the first episode, you can go back through the Mac catalog and find his show. Now, today's episode is, I thought, a little bit different. Now, Andy is one of the most prolific and sought-after speakers in veterinary medicine. He's the host and, and founder of the Uncharted Veterinary Conference, a great conference which I have had the pleasure to attend and highly recommend. He is a dear friend I've known since my early days in speaking, and the reason I want to get him on the show is because he's got one of the best strategic thinking brains in veterinary medicine. So we put veterinary medicine under the microscope, and more on that later in the show, but suffice to say, we had a really engaging conversation. I think you're going to get tons out of this. Now, just before we jump into the episode, I'd like to invite you to join something that can help you get ahead in your career as a vet. We all know that imposter syndrome, burnout, angry clients are real and cause many vets to leave their jobs and careers. But what you might not know is that there's a community where you can learn the essential street skills for how to be a great GP vet upon which you can build a sustainable, fulfilling career. A place where you can access mentors, view jobs from practices that care about culture and access weekly news, articles, podcasts, all dedicated to your career happiness. That place is called VetX and you can get access to all of this stuff, 14 hours of accreditation, live mentoring Q&A sessions, swag and more over on vetxinternational.com today. Registration is free so head over there and claim your membership today. Now back to the show. This was a great conversation with one of my best friends in veterinary medicine. There is some salty language, mostly my fault, sorry, but there is so much value to dig out of this. I think you're going to get a ton of listening in. So without further ado, let's crack on with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Andy Rourke. Andy Rourke, welcome back to Blood Dissection Road! <laughs> Two! That was three things, ah! not sure what happened there, but there you go. And it this is about. the audio version of me running into the room as the crowd goes bananas. Yeah. Your face says you don't know what that tune is. Do you know what chat No, no, I got it, I got it. It took me a second. It was not, it wasn't what I was going for. It's also possibly my singing. Yeah, it took me a second to zone in on that. And I was like, is that Chariots of Fire? Yeah. There you go. Okay, first question. Can you picture, take yourself back to watching Chariots of Fire, if you ever did? Do you know what beach, what famous beach, the opening sequence of Chariots of Fire is filmed on? It's meant to be a beach in Kent, but it is not. Do you know which famous beach it is? I don't. I have no idea. St. Andrews, West oh, Sands, really? where I grew up. Oh, very nice. I did not there you know. Go. I, I am of the age where, and like the, a large piece of our audience is like, I have no idea what the, they're talking about right now. I am of the age of, I did not see the original thing. I remember being a child and it was coming out. And I know that music 
because of the infinite number of parodies of that scene. You know, like like that music is used in so many comedies as like the comedic triumphant music. And like, I know it more from the knockoffs than the actual film it came from. This is true. Okay. And because right now I'm literally live searching rather than concentrating on what you're saying, which is immediately. Oh yeah. I've seen Will Ferrell run to that music. Like that's, that's my real frame of reference. It's not the original. Okay. So I'm going to get a Google link to two things in the show notes for this already tragically underpowered episode. (laughs) And that is, I'll put a link into the real one and then you've got to look in the background and look for St. Andrews because you can see all the things you see when the golf is on at the old course. And I'll put a link into a funny one as well. Probably completely inappropriate funny one. So if you're offended, then, you know, don't click that link. Yeah, I'm so glad you're doing that. My wife makes Zoolander jokes and she forgets that her college students were born in 2004. Oh, and she's speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. No, she's, <laughs> Does she yeah. pull up, try and pull a blue steel? Oh, oh, yeah, exactly right. She'll say something like, oh, I'm not an ambi-turner. And just dead silence in the room. Wah, wah, wah. I bet you think I'm not a good you Googleizer. And her <laughs> students, her students, <laughs> I could do them all day. I love it so much. It breaks my heart that college students are like, I was born in 2004. I have no idea. That is terrifying. And it may have a, it may be a useful segue into what sure. value we can actually add today. Like sort of a times are changing theme. It's got that little bit of a vibe about it because, okay, so everybody knows we're all sick to death of talking about fucking COVID, blah, blah, blah. Everything's shit. We're in a death spiral. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, fine. Let's we get should also uh, mention that there is a language advisory on this specific episode uh, now that we've gone past that. Thank Uh, you. Well, I mean, maybe we can edit that bit in first, right before, or bleep that shit out. Okay. I believe you're going to edit that out like I believe uh, that that the moon landing didn't happen. (laughs) So, Andy Rock, of the many things I like and enjoy spending time with you and think you are brilliant at, The one that I want to focus on today is you have got a great, I think one of the best strategic picture brains. And I think this is one of your secret or your superpowers. I don't think it's very secret, but I think it's one of your superpowers. And so I thought it'd be a nice way to open up this year's season of Blunt Dissection by taking, I'm going to dig into, and the, the framework I'm using for this, for anyone who's kind of interested in leadership. It's a book called Blue Ocean Strategy, which is a fantastic book. If you have any interest in ever running a business or, frankly, putting your own life under the lens, this is a book that's just got some of the best frameworks I've ever encountered. Blue Ocean Strategy from Harvard Business Press. The authors are W. Chan Kim and Rene Maborne, uh, which is okay. a very French-sounding name or possibly Belgian. It's a great book. It gets really geeky, nerdy into business strategy, which is right up my boulevard. Now, we're going to pull out one framework from this. And when I contacted you about doing this, I said, how do you fancy coming on and 
putting veterinary medicine under the sort of lens of the four actions framework. Now, loosely, so you can take this whatever way you want. But just to introduce this framework, it's basically looking at what you are doing now. So looking at what we are doing now in veterinary medicine, and you ask yourself four critical questions. And they're really simply, what should you reduce, i.e. what shit do we want to do a lot less of and drop it well below any standard that we are currently doing or delivering or trying to meet? Flip side to that is what do we want to raise and what do we want to make well above the standard we currently operate at? The next question is, what shit should we just stop altogether? So what stuff are we doing that we take completely for granted, but is actually a load of bull crap and we should just stop? And then the last one is, what do we need to create? So what factors do not exist at present that need to be created that the, this industry has never offered? That's very loose. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of take those in any which way. I think that veterinary medicine has actually been very conservative, but more recently we've been pretty good at creating, but we're all completely overrun. And I have a sense that there might be interesting stuff to explore in those areas. If any of those categories jump out at you? Yeah. So you asked me about it. I hadn't heard of the exact breakout. One of the things that we use a lot when working with practices is like start, stop, continue as a feedback mechanism, right? So as a leader, you go in and you're like, hey, team, what do I do that you want me to continue doing? What do you want me to start doing that I don't do? And what do you want me to stop doing that I do? And so it's a nice framework to facilitate people giving you feedback. And so that that's, I, I'm going to flex into sort of these four categories as best I can. Cool. But the way I looked at it, so I sat down and I was like, this is an interesting question. And so I kind of put it into the start, stop, continue sort of framework because that comes more easily to my mind. And then I kind of looked at it, you know, if I was the CEO of, veterinary medicine what are we trying to do from here and so i kind of you got to break it up right it's too big and so sort of the categories that i broke up and i'll put this back to you yeah. i started looking at you know so so pretend that vet medicine is a business and we're all in this together and, and i'm the ceo and i have a magic wand uh dave and i are ceo co-ceos which is a scary oh, a, proposition yeah that's so anyway trouble. i can talk about mission and values kind of philosophically what are we doing operations, like how we run our businesses, the customer experience, like what are we creating for pet owners? What are we doing for training and development? And then what are we doing for wellness and retention? So those are my five. So mission and values, ops, customer experience, training and development, and then wellness and retention. I kind of broke it out like that, as opposed to what do we want to start, stop and continue? Do you want to look at it like that? So how would you like to unpack this? I like this because fundamentally, I think what's behind my questioning is really basically what is working what is not working and to what degree do we need to stop start doing things because you know you're sort of what i'd really like to accomplish in this time we have together is to unearth things that are where are the weights that are causing us a lot of drag in the water but and we're really married to but we're are holding us back because everything we decide to spend time and energy on is something else we're not picking up or spending yeah. time and energy and, you know, the thing that happens most to teams is it's a constant overwhelm and just getting deluged by clinical work, which leads us to just endless firefighting, which leads us to everybody being burned out. Yeah. I like the lenses you've chosen to go through there. So let's explore. All right, cool. So whenever we talk about sort of strategic planning and stuff, you got to talk about sort of your values and your purpose first, right? Everything that you want to do serves a greater purpose. It should, Right what you choose to do in your sort of plan for yourself or for your business 
is 100% driven by who you want to be and where you want to go and what you think is important. And so when we look at vet medicine and kind of where we are from a philosophy, purpose, value standpoint, there's a couple of things I want to, I think we should continue. And there's one sort of cautionary tale that I'm really looking at, right? And so there's a lot of research that show that veterinarians are still a very trusted source of information. And it's easy to feel like, oh man, you know, nobody believes facts anymore. People don't believe in science, blah, blah, blah. The data support the idea that we are still very trusted in the eyes of pet owners. We need to continue to be that. And so we need to continue to be worthy of the public's trust. And that just means, you know, we have to continue to prioritize integrity. We've got to continue to practice with integrity and and to be honest with people and to truly try to serve them. And so I, I think we do that. And I think that everything else in in this discussion needs to go under the context of we need to be worthy of integrity. We need to be honest with people. I like that as a start point. And I don't want to deflect you away from your train of thought too far. So give this a light touch. Yeah. But where on the trust scale are we now compared to, you know, it's the trends really that I'm interested in here. Yeah, sure. Where on the trust scale are we now? Are you aware of evidence that says we're good, same, worse? So I'm not aware of evidence. So the evidence that's out there, there's two different pieces of this that we put together, right? And so when you survey people about the most trusted professions, we're hanging in there where we've been in the past. It's kind of us. Human nurses are like. Exactly right. It's kind of us and human nurses, right? What that is measuring is our trust relative to other experts and professionals. So I believe that, yeah, we're hanging in there. I think, and there's lots of evidence for this too, that just trust in experts in general is falling. Right. And I science. mean, there, there's just, there's just no, yeah, a hundred percent. I think every profession that has traditionally been trusted as experts is going down. And there's a lot of reasons for that, that we can talk about. And most of them don't have anything to do with us. They have to do with, I saw a thing about, it was really interesting. It was a study as a psychology study and it was on the trends in how people are affected by certain verbiage. And what they found is over the last 40 years, phrases like I believe and I feel have increased in their persuasiveness as far as how people receive them. And phrases like we conclude and the results show have decreased in the effectiveness and how people receive them. And as it's 40 years of data, it shows this slide. And the attribution the authors put to this is that we, as a people, are becoming just more and more individualistic so that phrases like I believe and I think and my experiences is and I feel, that resonates with us as individualists. And together we conclude is just it means less and less than it used to. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think social media and the everybody is an expert, you know, platform. I think all of that adds to this. And, you know, anyone with with an opinion uh, and who can attract an audience can have a platform now. And there's some great things about that, but there's also some hard things about that. And at some point, I think just belief, hey, this person is an expert. I think that used to matter a whole lot more than it does now. Human beings are very persuadable and we all like the easy button. Yeah. Science often doesn't come up with easy button answers. It comes up with tough questions. And, and yeah, I can't think of an example where that's true. But I mean, I, I no. when you can't think of an example where science failed to provide an easy button answer, but I'm sure everyone's out there. Okay, so trust is 
we're good, but it potentially on the wane. We need to watch that. Yeah, well, I mean, the big thing with trust, right? The, the reason I sort of put this on there is one: whenever we talk about the other thing making changes, I want we need to set that framework of trust and integrity above all else, and, and that's important and, because we're going to start talking about making some changes and doing some tweaks. And I don't want anyone to think that we're talking about being disingenuous or anything. We're going to continue to serve the North Star. The one thing in the trust category that I got to pay attention to, and, and I think you more than anyone have brought this up to me and sort of put it on my radar is we have got to continue to hold the human animal bond as the North star over shareholder value, which as we see corporate consolidation, and again, I'm not anti-corporate at all. Don't think I am. But when we're talking about publicly traded companies and when we're talking about venture capital firms coming into our profession, I don't know that their North star is the human animal bond. But in fact, when you're looking at, at American companies, right, and we're looking at, at the stock market, they have a legal obligation to maximize shareholder profits and return value to stakeholders. And if they don't do that, that's a problem from a legal standpoint. And so is that in direct conflict with our North Star as a profession and what we want to do? I don't think it is. I think you could reconcile those things, but you cannot take your hands off the steering wheel. I agree with you. And I think that's just worth dwelling on for a second, just because it's too easy to portray that group of people as the bad guys. It removes the responsibility to be accountable for any of the bad stuff from yourself. Maximizing shareholder value in a veterinary practice, the owners of vet practice have the yeah. same obligation. They're just willing to die on a different hill. But long-term value for your shareholder, even if that shareholder is you or your, your team or whoever, still requires doing a good job for your customers, always did. So they needn't be exclusively mutual. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear with this. Again, like, I'm not anti-corporate group at all. Yeah. I think it would be disingenuous to be like, oh, those business guys, <laughs> they're all about the money. But me, the independent practice owner who has been focused on making a living and generating profits in my business, I, however, am beyond uh, reproach. You know, like, no. It's the same balance has always been. We've always had for-profit businesses. Right. The only thing that I would sort of point out and sort of say, hey, we, we keep an eye on this, is as you remove the profit drivers, I guess some would say, from the clinic, does that open up doors to say these people who are not in the clinic and they're not talking to the pet owners are driving towards increased profitability. I think all of us kind of have that in the back of our mind to some degree. We just want to be careful of it. I think that you're going to see in corporate consolidation in the States, I think that there will be some companies that maybe don't get that right. I don't think they're going to last very long. I don't think people, I think they're going to lose the hiring battles. I think they're going to be less rewarding places to work. I really do think that the check and balance here is that the people on the ground want to work for a company that's doing things for the right reason. And so I, I think that that's, that's sort of the governor on this. Is corporate consolidation something that goes in the, it's clearly started, does it need to be in the stop less or more camp? I think corporate consolidation is, is a force of nature. It's a hard one because it's actually, it's a trend. It's not a business. Exactly right. Everybody. Yeah. So yeah, so from a strategy standpoint, you know, I look at corporate consolidation, you better accept it. It's the rain. It's here and it's driven by forces beyond any of our control and it's just going to be what it is. One of my buddies uh, lived in Norway for a while and he has this Norwegian saying that translates to, there's no bad weather, only bad clothes. I, that's kind of where my head's at. Yeah, that's kind of where my head's at. Yeah, control what you can. I mean, that's 
that's a, yeah. a weather version of the stoic prayer pretty much there isn't it yeah it kind of is yeah i like that so yeah this is sort of my thoughts on sort of values and culture i mean you got anything to add to that as far as sort of the the overall philosophy heart and soul okay i want to ask another couple of questions there yeah sure again using that framework do you think we do a good job like where's the needle on how well mission purpose values i think we can all agree that veterinary medicine has a very clear there's a very clear purpose for us all that's why we're here Mm -hmm. i'm less clear on what the mission and the individual purposes are and whether values are really there's a lot of values i'm not so sure that i'm seeing that reflected in virtues i.e values being lived yeah rather than just said where do you see the needle in terms of how we're performing and what do you think we ought to be doing as we move through this year and beyond with the trends? Like, how does this focus help us? Where are we now? How does this help us when it comes to mission, purpose, values? On sort of the values, all right. That's a good question. So for that, what I, w- I would do is I would switch it over to the wellness and retention part of the plan for me. Because that's where we're sort of getting is, are we living our values? And we talk a lot about purpose and mission. I really think purpose and mission, uh, those things feed into retention, Right. Not a lot of us got into vet medicine because we're like, this is the best way I can make money. (laughs) And like, if you did that, you're misreading the situation (laughs) horribly, I think. Yeah. Due diligence isn't your strong suit. Exactly right. So if you want people to stay in this profession, right? And, And I think a big way that we have to address wellness is through mission and purpose. I think one of the reasons that we have a hard row right now uh, with mental health and wellness in our profession and the burnout numbers are high and they just are. And we just need to need to own that. That's a, a reality of where we are now, where I think this really turns toxic and where uh, I think where a lot of us are is when you say, I have these stressors, I have this, you know, this burnout risk. I have these things. My friend, uh, Dr. Indumani, who's like the chief medical officer at brief media. So a publisher clinicians brief, she's doing a, a medical ethics advanced degree at Harvard Medical School. Now she's a freaking genius. Anyway, she wrote this, this paper I saw recently and she talks about moral distress. Mm-hmm. And so moral distress is, it's the psychological moral pain that you feel when you know what the right thing to do is and you're not able to do it. And I thought it was so beautiful. And so when I talk about mental health and wellness, I always say, you know, it's important to say up front, this is a challenging profession. And from a mental health burnout wellness standpoint, veterinary medicine has unique challenges. And that's as much as I would kind of unpack it, right? And what I was sort of getting at is like, you guys know what I mean. Like we do stuff in vet medicine other people don't do. And we wrestle with things other people don't wrestle with. What I was talking about is moral distress. Mm-hmm. And I think Indu just really put a nice, beautiful little pin in that. So I just want to put a little pin in that right now. So, so we've, got, we've got moral distress and things like that. Where we really get into trouble is we have these problems. We have this burnout. We have these stresses. We have these things. And we get in a bad spot when we lose the vision of purpose and meaning. And so we can't really say, this is the good that we're doing in the world. This is why I'm putting myself out here. These are the successes that I'm having. And I think that when you don't articulate, hey, guys, we're a team, and this is why we're here, and this is what a success looks like, and this is what a win looks like, and hey, you didn't really notice it because you were really busy yesterday, but we had six wins yesterday in the way that we have decided matters and that we all agree is our purpose. And so I think that we get, I think we get in trouble there. And so from that standpoint, I think that we all need to be focusing more on what does success look like? What is our purpose? Like, what are we really doing here? What do the wins look like? And then we have negativity bias as well, right? So which means that we just, again, I believe that we're all created by natural selection. 
And natural selection gives us negativity bias, which means we really hold on to bad stuff. And when bad things happen, we remember it so that we don't get hurt again. But we don't hold on to good stuff all that well. And so we really got to continue to sort of bring this up. But yeah, I, I think from a wellness standpoint, I think we've really got to just start to put forward, this is our purpose. This is our values. You know, this is kind of what we believe in. There's not a ton of people can do this and go from big to little, as in big picture, into granular action. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking there, I was just writing a few notes. And the model that springs into my mind is the PERMA model of positive psychology mm -hmm. and linked with sort of flourishing, you know, sort of Martin Seligman's work around having purpose, having an engaging thing or engagement relationships, having um, meaning and accomplishments and being able to build those into your day. Burnout particularly, this is an area I think this model could work well for us. What must we, in your opinion, stop doing in order to really start to tackle burnout? Yeah. What things must we really seriously start doing? I mean, none of this easy button shit where it's like, oh, if I sit and just go watch a webinar, everything will be okay. Or if I quit my job, everything will be okay. Because you know what? Like there's, I don't know the conversations you have, but when I speak with my colleagues who are lawyers or accountants or doctors or dentists, they say exactly the same thing. Yeah. That burnout is a thing in all of our industries, all of our sectors. So just swapping sector, just stopping doing what you're doing, like we still have to generate money. We still have to generate revenue. And we've spent so much time, energy, like heart energy, financial energy, emotional energy, getting to this point in our career. And let's assume we're not all just pathetic at due diligence. And this purpose is meaning matters to us. So it's, it's kind of scarring to let it go as well as keep doing it. So what do we have to start, stop, do less of, or, you know, do below the industry average or do more from a, you know, a strategic level, where are the levers? Where can yeah. we actually make this? You know, people say COVID will go away and just become like a normal part of life. Yeah, how? Burnout will go away. It will back off. Yeah, how? Yeah, yeah. Do you see, do you see mechanisms for that actually happening? Yeah, I do. There, there's three different mechanisms that I look at when I look at wellness in the future. Now, first thing is to set realistic expectations. Yeah. Now, general unhappiness and levels of loneliness and depression in the general population have gone up significantly. And so when I talk about this, I'm not talking about going to panacea. I'm going to, you know, I want to make us mirror the general population or maybe be better than the general population. And I think we can be better than the general population. Like we have a meaningful, purposeful job and we get to interact with pets and we get to put our hands on things and fix them. Like we have the potential to have a job that makes us really feel good, even relative to the general population. I, I do believe that. We do. We tick a shit ton of boxes there. I hundred percent. That's what I mean. Like the potential for us to really have a great, great profession and that we feel really fantastic about it's absolutely there. Everybody needs to realize that. Okay. So three mechanisms. I look at it in levels, right? So there's the professional level, there's the practice level, and there's the individual level. And I think one of the things that we have done poorly in the past that we needed to turn down is the focus on the individual level. And so we say to people, you should get therapy. <laughs> we say to people, you know, personal boundaries, you should learn to say no. And all those things are true. And you should learn to say no. But guys, if that's your whole wellness program is the individual person on the ground saying no, that's a craptacular wellness program. 
And like, let's just talk about why wellness stuff breaks down right now. The truth is because, and it all comes from a good place and it comes from the past. When we used to have James Harriet and people would just, the number of clients you saw were the number of people who would actually, you know, come to you and contact you. And you didn't answer the phone when you were out on a farm call and there was no answering machine. It just rang. But now we've got people in their messaging you through social media and they're texting and they're calling and they're, you know, sending emails and they're showing up and they're doing I'm like, it's just, just this massive and it never ends. Like you're getting emails after you go home and text messages from your neighbors and it just it never ends. And so, so many of us have as practice leaders and as organizational leaders, we have abdicated our responsibility. And what we do is we say, and it comes from a good place. We say, let's let the doctors on the ground make the call. And so when people come in and they say, can you help me? I don't have money. What are we going to do? Hey, I know you guys are supposed to close in 10 minutes, but please, are you going to really turn me out into the rain? We said, we're going to let the doctors make that decision on the ground because we empower them. And I kind of go, you know what? Bullshit. And don't take it the wrong way. I know, I know that we do that for the right reasons. Look, man, if your whole wellness program comes down to doctors looking at a crying pet owner with tears running down their face and they're quivering and they're holding the sick parvo puppy and they need this thing, and your wellness program is, hey, we need to learn how to say no, you're out of your mind. That's not going to happen. And if it does happen, you're breaking the soul of the people who work for you. But to put it on them and be like, you should make this call, that's ridiculous. This is not fair, and it's not sustainable. And so tough love is, at the practice level, we need to start shielding from burnout. We need to start making some policies, and it may mean that we're not going to be as warm and fuzzy as we used to be, and I'm sorry, it's like, hey, look, man. And that's why I said we start with integrity and, and, and you know, protecting the human-animal bond. So stepping back, let me move to the other mechanism here. The, at the professional level, we need to set more realistic expectations of yeah. who veterinarians are and what our services are. And what I mean with that, and I say this is practice level, because I don't, or sorry, the professional level, I don't think practices should be the ones saying this. But we need to impress on pet owners, hey, we're real busy. And it is not easy to get into the vet. And if your pet is getting sick, you need to go ahead and go instead of waiting to the last minute where you're going to end up in trouble. And if you end up in trouble, you're going to be seeing one of our wonderful emergency practices, you know, and you should just know that. And that's just setting expectations. So people aren't going, Oh, our vets are amazing. And no matter what, they'll take care of us. We've seen with the burnout problems that we have and people just trying to keep their heads above water, we can't be all things to all people. And so we should start to send those messages and those signals. And I know that's a, that is not a, a fun, warm, fuzzy thing, but that's a healthy long-term, you know, professional survival thing. I saw another study real quick. I'll just put this at a professional level. Yep. I saw a study a couple of days ago and I can't remember where it was, but basically they were looking at the cost of healthy pet ownership. And the idea was they said your average dog costs $993 a year. And that stuck in my mind because I did a little experiment myself. I've got a healthy, goofy three-year-old mutt dog. And I was like, hey man, if I just want to do basic wellness on this dog and nothing bad happened. How much am I going to spend on this dog in a year? And that's including flea and tick and heartworm, which I would say that's necessary, heartworm tests, uh, physical exam, basic vaccines, and then feeding him a grocery store brand dog food. It's a thousand bucks a year to have a healthy three-year-old dog. And so that $993, that tracked with me. I don't think pet owners know that. And I think the fact that that's not the expectation and people just don't think about what pets cost, I think that puts us in a hard spot right off the bat as far as wellness and engaging effectively with pet owners. So that's kind of the, what, what my strategic plan at the professional level would be. I want to probe just a little more on that. There's a couple of things that resonated with me there, but let me just probe a little further on the professional level. You know, the individual responsibility clearly gets pushed back or is getting pushed back from 
veterinarians on the ground. And, and a lot of the work I do is with veterinarians on the ground in one hand, mm. but with practices as well around building sustainable cultures and systems. Up at the professional level, though, are we being set up to... I ask this, it's a mischievous question. Sure, go ahead. But are we being set up by our Hippocratic Oath to fail from day one? Because we are almost legally obligated to place the care of an animal, right? And what I'm going to say now, I'm going to say as as a vegan, so everyone knows there, sure. as a, invert commas, lower life form, we're asked to subjugate our health, mental well-being in order to keep our license alive. Are we set up, are our professional bodies really helping us combat or does something need to change there to say, look, there needs to be more of a clarity around here that, you know, perhaps it isn't everything is on the veterinarian, that there is wider responsibility, that there is wider opportunity for others, and that some of this archaic legislation needs to yeah. change. So I guess what I would say is there's a messaging question and then there's a operations question, right? And I think when push comes to shove, we do no harm. I think that's the truth. When push comes to shove, we do no harm. And I don't think that should go away. Now, the way we talk about that is very important, I think. So I'll give you an example of how a lot of us deal with clients that don't have financial resources to take care of their pets, right? Now, I'm not going to let your pet go without care because you can't pay. For the sake of this conversation, let's just say I'm just going to put that forward and say, I'm not going to let your pet. Now, there is me putting on the sign outside the building that says, I'm not going to let your pet not have care if you can't pay. And that's what's on our website. And it's, you know, and we put it on social media. And then there's me uh, saying, we have multiple care options that you can use for payment and all of these things, knowing in the back of my mind, when we get down to push comes to shove, I'm not going to let your pet go without care. And I really think that, that that's the nuance where I'm playing in. I don't think that at the professional level, us saying we will always be there to take care of your pet. And this is our professional policy and creed. And you should love us because we're going to be there. I think that sets unrealistic expectations and it frustrates the rest of us. I think that that should probably be true behind the scenes, but I don't think that we should lead with that. And I think that we have. And I think the pushback on this on the other side is that people say, well, we want people to trust us. We want people to love their veterinarian. We want people to know their veterinarian. I'm going, I, I'm worried that we're getting loved to death. You know, I'm worried that we have run such a nice guy campaign that people expect us to make these sacrifices for them. And when we were in a rural area and we had just a certain small sort of number of clients, we could make those sacrifices and everything kind of worked out. But I think that now we've got sort of a, we have a shortage of caregivers and things like that. We can't necessarily promote that, hey, we're super nice, put your burdens on us. I think that we need to get more realistic about that. But yeah, I, I think when you look at the wellness and the mental health stuff, I think just putting forward this idea of veterinarians will absorb whatever pet owners put upon them. I think that that's a, a no-win situation and it, and it can lead into a sense of hopelessness of our colleagues. And when people feel hopeless, buddy, that's when burnout happens, right? At the professional level, that's the strategic plan that I would have is I'm not ready to throw the old, we do no harm, you know, we take care of people out the window, but I do think it's time to adjust the messaging. And maybe we're not so upfront about that with pet owners. Instead, we're more about, hey, 
Remember that owning a pet is a responsibility. These are expectations of what it means to get care these days. Hey, remember to be saving for your pet's medical treatments and things like that and start to shift to a less warm, fuzzy, more matter of fact messaging because I think that that's how we take care of our people on the ground. I think we can do that without being jerks. I'm not being cruel. We're not going to be, you know, just cold and and you need to have this money and be and you better have our money. Like I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about toning down some of the warm, fuzzy rhetoric and messaging and get much more pragmatic and realistic about like, hey, this is what pet owners need to know about medical care today. And it sounds like as well at the practice level, you know, I, I always feel like, you know, I hate to say this about James Herriot because he it was the right thing in that age. Mm-hmm. But how many of us, and I think to our first point in the conversation into, you know, Alison, nobody knowing Zoolander in her lectures to, yeah. to now, you know, James Harriet isn't the reason that a lot of people got into vet school. And it's, you know, James Harriet's a very UK phenomenon. So even in, in an American lecture theater, when I'm there, maybe 50, 60% of people have no idea who I'm talking about there. But if you don't know, then James Harriet was a graduate from Glasgow Vet School who wrote the books All Creatures Great and Small, which are just about the best-selling veterinary books on mm-hmm. on the planet. And this was probably more popular than, you know, luminaries such as Dr. Paul. Yeah. You know, or, but probably practiced a similar standard of agricultural medicine, regardless of, you know, the location of the practice. But the title there is All Creatures Great and Small. Brilliant title for a book then shitty marketing system now like how could we possibly be all creatures all things to all people that's absolutely i think one of the critical matters and and i think your point there about just you know particularly i mean as you're talking there the answer is more collaboration joined up thinking from top to bottom it's gotta be one can't help but think that is corporate medicine not a place that this can actually happen far more effectively and faster in theory. I agree. I think this is one of the good things about corporate medicine. I really do. I think at the practice level, we're going to see real advances in wellness from the corporate guys. Like that's one of the benefits, right? So we've moved down from the profession to the practice level of wellness. And the integration of a supply chain across, you know, all of the things. So I can pass the ball quite safely knowing, okay, it's five to seven, Mrs. Jones has just arrived with her bleeding dog, but cool. I've got family to go see. There's our emergency yeah. care provider. And yes, that will cost more. And yes, tough shit, because the option is me being burned out and not being able to see. Sure. You and a lot of the ways that we fall behind the general population in, in wellness is because we have ignored industry standards, real like legal standards, because we say, well, it doesn't apply to us because we're veterinarians and technicians and we're saving lives. We don't take lunch breaks while even though it's legally mandated, you know, and people talk about wellness and they think it's therapy or it's rest days and Instagram posts beside the lake. It's freaking not like there's a piece of it, but mostly it's wages. It's having health insurance, having benefits. It's having breaks. It's actually taking your lunch break. It's having a protocol to close at the end of the day. And I'm not going to go into the Verizon wireless store, make a pitch to the assistant manager and have him keep the store open an extra hour. It's not going to happen. And again, like, I think when you get into the corporate world, like they're like, oh no, we, we need to actually do what's legally mandated to take care of our employees. And, and I think that we've kind of had a cowboy culture in vet medicine for a long time. And again, I say that with love and I say it because I, I love our culture. I love vet medicine. I love where we come from. I'm proud of it. At the same time, 
think it's time for us to get on board with actually having some protocols about when we call doctors on their day off and how we freaking set schedules. Do you know how many technicians and front desk people don't know what their work schedule is next week? Mm. Like, how do you rest? How do you recharge? How do you make plans? You know, how do you do it? Like, those are basic things. But the corporates, they know what their work schedule is. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're uh, hopefully there's someone out there who's like, nope. It's like, I hope so. But they are going to, they are going to push that, right? They're going to say like, this is how we schedule and this is where we schedule. And then also, you know, we're talking about schedule flexibility. I mean, I still see veterinarians in this day and age with the hiring, you know, difficulties that we have. People will look at, at a veterinarian who wants to work part time and they're like, we don't have time for a part time veterinarian here. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. But I see that. I saw that two weeks ago. A good friend and actual previous podcast guest on the show, I'm not going to name names here, but she has had this problem because, you know, she wishes to work as part-time. Partly from, you know, physically that's what she can handle. Yeah. And be very effective in that time frame. But regardless of whether it's physical or family commitments or anything, the notion of not being able to find flexible work schedules if it doesn't work financially, that's one thing. But if it works financially and it's just, oh, it's two people to manage, then how weak is leadership? How weak are, are you when you're not willing to take that yeah. chance and improve the flexibility of your system for the downside of potentially having more heads to manage and that's just a bit too hard? Like that's not trying hard enough. No, I agree. So those are some of the ideas that, at the practice level, right? And again, you might have noticed by now, there's not a single bull, like silver bullet, this fixes the problem. It's, it's all multimodal. That's some of the stuff at the practice level. And then at the individual level, we've already been there. Yeah. I do think it's time for a mind shift change. You know, the so two big mind shifts that need to happen. Number one, we need to stop celebrating the suffering culture. Yeah. Right. And again, I saw this since vet school and, and everybody sees it. And people get mad when I say this. And I'm really sorry. I'm not trying to make anybody mad, but I, I got to say it. Man, how many of us have looked around and, and we've been like, oh, buddy, we're talking to other vets. We're talking, yeah, we're talking to other veterinarians, let's say, or other vet techs. And we're like, man, I probably worked 100 hours last week. And somebody's going, you know what they're going to say. They're going to be, I work 100 hours every week. And someone's like, I have never worked less than 100 hours. And someone's like, my marriage lasted seven days because I worked 300 hours a week, which is not possible, but I discovered magic. So I can then use it to work more hours. And people are like, my house is actually a hospital. When I get home, I start my afternoon rounds with the staff that lives in my basement to take care of the broken animals I live with. And like, it's this suffering Olympics and it takes off. And we like, we're flexing on each other with how little life balance we have <laughs> or how much of a beating we allow ourselves to take. And again, there's nuance here. If you want to have pets at home and you want to, work on cases and you love your job, then good on you. But at some point, it's not a feature, it's it's a flaw. And so I, I really think that we've got to stop looking at and valuing ourselves with what we sacrifice to this profession. That's jacked up. And so I, I think that that mind shift, we need to start you know, patting ourselves on the back for the impact that we make and the good that we do and how we're able to put our work down and go home and do the things that we enjoy. We should celebrate ourselves for how good we feel about where we are in our lives and the choices that we've made and not how bad we feel because we are the givers and the sufferers. And related to that, we got to stop this whole calling thing. 
Say more. So it's kind of related. It's, it's different from the sufferers, you know what I mean? But like, I got to tell you, and again, I know that, that this rubs some people the wrong way when I say it, but you just hear me out. I think a lot, a lot, a lot of the uh, mental health uh, burnout stuff that we get comes from this idea of vet medicine as a calling, right? Oh, it's, okay. It, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, uh, you know what I mean? It's this higher purpose. It's something that we're tapped for that is bestowed yeah. upon us. It's not healthy, man. I had Dr. Sam Morello on the podcast I do, the Cone Shane podcast, a couple of weeks ago. And she was talking about this study that she put out in the journal of the AVMA about intern and resident pay. And it's abysmal. And most interns, they like there's this data of a significant percentage of, of interns don't make a living wage while they're they're doctors doing internships. They don't make a living wage. And there's not a lot of economic reason for it other than we've just always done this and you need to pay your dues. And so I said to her something like, you know, Sam, why do people do this? And she said, honestly, it's kind of a captive audience if you buy into the idea that you're you're called and this is what you're supposed to do. And, you know, and this is where you're supposed to go. You say, this is what is required. This is the sacrifice that's required of me. I don't know. I, I, I feel like that's this pressure we put on ourselves. That's that's probably not realistic. We could dig into this other system that's anathema to me called the match which yeah. seems like the single best and worst, depending on which side of this particular archaic process you're on, system of recruitment in the world that does not adhere to any good recruitment principles that I recognize whatsoever. But of course, you're, you're, if you don't go through it, then you're kind of a bit screwed. Yeah. If you want to have a career as a specialist. Oh, yeah, that's it. I mean, they, they got you. If, if you want to be a specialist and that's the dream then you have to go through this. You, you really are. Like there's not an alternative path for most specialties where you get to go around this pay structure, you know? And so again, and that's, that's an example. But I mean, the, the easier example of the calling is look at the student debt, man. We've got people with $300,000, $500,000 in student debt. And you go, well, how is this ever a rational idea? And I, I really truly believe that people believe that they're called to the profession and this is a a higher, a higher thing. And then they get into the profession and they don't like it or they're just tired or they're burned out. But the idea of changing what they're doing or going into industry or, or I don't know, working in a pharma company, things like that, it feels like failure. It feels like everything was a lie. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I got to say it at some point, I think we're all better off. If we stop thinking about vet medicine as a calling, it's a freaking job. And like, that's heresy to say, I'm going to get torched, but it's a job. Being a vet tech is a job. I believe it can be a great job. I believe it can be a rewarding job. It's a job I love to have. It's a freaking job, you know? And like, I go home and I'm a dad and I like to do yard work and I do improv comedy and I am another person and I can put that stuff down because it's not who I am. It's not all I was meant to be. It's a job that I have. I feel like, and that's a fundamental shift in our profession. And a lot of people really rail against that because if they feel like it's taking something, something away from them. And I've been playing a lot with this idea of vet medicine as religion recently. Like, man, how many of us have our whole purpose and being wrapped up in, in vet medicine? How many of us have our whole social lives tied up in vet medicine? It's, it's the church, you know, in, in a lot of ways for a lot of us. And I go, guys, it's, it's hard to go and negotiate for a higher wage in the church, isn't it? It's hard to go and tell the church that you need work-life balance. 
I think this this idea of this elevation, while I love that medicine and I don't want people to be disengaged, I want to be more engaged. But I think that they'll be more engaged and they'll be here longer if they recognize that this is a job and make decisions with their eyes wide open in that way. I don't think we should use the calling to try to attract new people to our profession. I think we should use wages and actual enjoyment of the work to attract people to our profession. All right. So I like this. So there's a couple of, I think, areas where we could get into here. One is, okay, the the wages, let's go in because this brings us to the operations category. Sure. And in order for us, so let me, because this is hard to get to detail without having a, a good question. I think the good question here is if the challenge is retention and one of the problems we face is getting potentially the right people into the profession, yeah. getting them out with a wage that justifies the debt that's there. Sure. Yep. Given that education does cost money. How do we, change the economics of veterinary medicine such that that equation can be satisfied. So I got, I got two things for you. And again, this is CEO magic wand. And, and again, let me go ahead and put in this point in case you haven't noticed this. This is all uh, opinion and a hyperbole. Uh, this is all opinion for me. These are the places I would start to work and then I would see what happened and I would see the ramifications and I would just course. So I, I don't want anyone to be like Andy Work thinks that this is the answer. This is how I can get my head around it. And these are the things I would start working on to see what happens when I tighten the screws. So the two things, when you say, how do you make this economically feasible? Number one, and I think this is going to happen. And this goes into my continue pile. We need to continue to fracture and fragment the profession. This is not a flaw. It's a feature. And so it used to be that we all basically had the same mixed animal practice and we all worked in a mixed animal practice. The only variation was uh, are you a one doctor practice? Are you a three doctor practice? Are you a seven doctor practice? And that was as much variation we see. And guys, the mold has shattered. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. And so now we've got low cost, high volume practices. We have white glove, high customer service practices. We have the Mayo Clinic specialty practices. We have emergency practices. We have house call practices. We have home euthanasia and hospice care practices. We have telehealth practices, right? We have, uh, you know, concierge medicine where people have 600 clients who stroke them a check every month or once a year or whatever. And I just take care of these 600 people and that's my only people. And I don't take anybody else, but I just do all of their stuff and they have my cell phone and they call me. And there's no wrong way to do any of this. It's all good. So part of making the economics work is we have got to finally own the fact that we can't be all things to all people. And so we need to not get our uh, undies in a bunch when people do vaccine clinics and when people do a high volume, low cost approach to medicine. And it's funny. I hear people who are like, I just, you know, we, these clients that don't have funds or and they come in and, and God, they break my heart and they make it so hard. And, da, 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 da. and I say, well, I heard there's a low cost place open up and you're like, oh, I hope they go to business. What are you talking about? People like uh, there's just veterinarians that still have a scarcity mentality where they think they're competing with other veterinarians. It's like, no, you're not, man. You're competing with inactivity and people not coming to the vet. Like that's that's who you're competing. Or not having a pet at all because they can't afford it. Because they can't afford it. Exactly right. And so, uh, you know, continue the the fragmentation. I think that we're going to see uh, when I look at my crystal ball, which I have to say has has not had the best track record in the last three years or so. But I still own it. It's got like duct tape slapped across it. When I look at my crystal ball, I see nonprofit vet clinics that are just sort of like, hey, we're figuring out how to focus on accessibility. There's been nonprofit vet clinics around for the last 30 years, but for a completely different reason. That You're talking about 
a mission purpose, not yes. for profit specifically. This I'm going to live my heart values here and profit isn't going to come into it. That's what I'm talking about. And I think there's people who want that job and there's people who have that job. And I think that that can provide a, a meaningful life. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, uh, I think that's part of it, but I think that we continue to, to break out and say, I can't be all things to all people. Like there is no model where the current vet practices provides the highest standard of care. And then also takes care of people who are flat broke and they love their pet, you know, like they just think they just, it's too much. It's the gap is too big. And so the answer is we continue to practice in different ways and spread out and fill different niches. And I think that that, that fragmentation is really important. The other part of it, I think spectrum of care, it's time for this. And this fits into sort of the development training part, but I'll put it in the ops part for right now. Um, spectrum of care of like, hey, as our abilities in medicine continue to go up and the gold standard gets higher and higher off the ground, the silver standard is uh, pretty robust. And there's a lot of ways that are not the gold standard of care that provide acceptable care at a lower price. I think the strategic plan from that is we need to talk more about that. And we need to actually start talking about the how. What's scary is nobody wants to educate on the silver standard of care. They want to educate on the gold standard of care. And I get it. And we should always be pushing and advocating for the best. But at some point, we also have to look at reality and say, hey, I don't know what percentage of your clients are taking the gold standard, but it ain't all of them. And we should talk more about what the silver standard looks like and what the real difference in the gold and the silver standard is. And if we have to make sacrifices in medical care because of cost, what sacrifices can we make that are going to still give us the best medical outcomes? And when you start doing that kind of training. And so anyway, so standard of care, ongoing fragmentation. And the last part of it for me is we got, and again, this is radical stuff, but I think this may be where we're going. I hope so. We got to get away from lump sum payments where people show up at the vet once a year and plop down 500 bucks for their two pets. People don't have that. And that's not how the economy works anymore. We really need to continue to shift the model over to a, a subscription ongoing care where people are able to make sort of payments as they go along and along and along. I think that one, I think that helps reduce the amount of time that people show up and we say it's $750 and they go, that's my entire savings right here. It's amazing the difference in psychology when people pay $100 a month versus when you ask them to pay $1,200 at one time. It's mind-blowing. It took me a long time to get my head around it, but I do, I do believe that. The other thing, I got a question a couple of weeks ago. I was at a conference, and this uh, person raised their hand, and they said, well, what do you do about, I'll just be honest, uh, they said, what do we do about Chewy? And what do we do about these people online who are just taking our business and taking our business and taking our business? I think the answer for us is to develop a sort of a suite of services. I think that veterinarians should follow the Apple model where, you know, I buy all Apple stuff. I got an iPhone. I got a, a MacBook. It's ridiculously expensive overpriced. Like I can't believe that I pay the money that I pay for these Apple things, but I pay it because they all work together and they all integrate and they all just, you know, I know I can get support from one place. I think that that's the value proposition that vet clinics can offer but it involves integrating things into wellness plans that actually work together and support each other. And I would say with that comes uh, the chance to spread out the payments. But again, we're just, we're looking down the road as where do we go? I think that keeps revenue flowing to us. And I think it keeps us in the healthcare conversation, not just with physical exams, but with the overall health. Of I think it's really good. I wonder if you have any examples or experience of people that you think are doing a good job that might be exemplars for some of the things we've talked about so whether it's systems because we've really touched on some valuable stuff here i think burnout actually dipped into a lot of stuff from mission and purpose 
to the wellness conversation. And right now we're playing around in the sort of ops customer service areas of your your five yeah. systems. And you, you could certainly argue that learning and development would follow all of those things. So that's my uh, crowbar in excuse for not hitting that category sure. just yet. But I wonder if you have any exemplars of places that are either doing professional practice individual systems really well and which bits of that, even if it's not a full package, but there's something you're seeing there that's going well or niches that are being executed really well. Any of these things that you sort of discussed, maybe do any, do any things jump to mind? Yeah, sure. I haven't seen anybody who I'm like, that's the future. I've seen all of the pieces in different places that have worked really well. You know, people talk about wellness plans for a long time. It's it's not a new idea. Banfield has led the charge. They continue to do their wellness plans. I'm not saying their wellness plans are perfect, but I'm saying there's a reason that they've been doing it for as long as they have, and they continue to push it and do it. So, I mean, Banfield has been running wellness plans, and, and it's made a lot of sense for them. There's other companies that are out there running and implementing wellness plans. I was at VMX, and I was doing some work with a, a pet food company talking about exam room stuff. And one of the things I did a co-presentation uh, with one of their nutritionists and we had a video from a practice where they had done and set this thing up and they were using direct to home shipping. And it was, it was God, such a good video. Like I generally, I'm like, oh man, we're going to play a video. This is going to be death. I was like, this was real good. I saw it like 10 times and I was always like, this is really solid. And so basically this practice is decides uh, that they don't want to give up the nutrition market and they want to also increase compliance. We know that right now pet owners are, they have a certain compliance for taking the special food that we give to them and the percentage of them that comes back and gets a second bag of that special food is real low. But if we can get them onto an auto ship program where stuff shows up at their house, it can make a big difference. And so this guy's going in and he's talking about his practice and how they started the auto ship. And he was like, it didn't work. It bombed. And then he said, what we realized was we were trying to do it in the exam room. And it just didn't fit our workflow. We had too many things and we weren't able to talk about it. So he stopped back and he had a communications team that he set up and basically leveraged sort of the front desk and the text together so that they would handle nutrition conversations outside the exam room. And then they would get people signed up and they would give them a small bag and then they would get them signed up for their first shipment. And they said, we'll see you back and we'll weigh your pet or we'll do whatever and we'll make these adjustments. And here's how you make the adjustments. They just held their hand and got them signed up. And the business just boomed with nutrition. He said the thing that was most shocking, which I thought was really cool, was he was like, you would think that we'd be setting all these people up on these auto ships that we're going to sell less dog food in the practice. That's not true. We sell more dog food in the practice because people come and they want to pick up more for grooming or, or they're boarding or whatever, or they're short for this week or what, whatever happened. He's like, our actual in-clinic sales went up while we were doing home delivery. Are you, and feel free, and I appreciate you're not, uh, naming names and anything like that but there's no sponsor 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 neutrality here let's say sure. there's no sponsor for this podcast. oh no 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 i, I just love if you've got an example of the practice that they could go check out the listeners can check out and the is working with this that come to mind and if not then we could always drop something in the show notes afterwards so. yeah yeah i don't know if if the video will be available so uh so yeah. hills has it and i don't know if they're going to make it available so i don't know we're probably going to I'm, I'm going to totally edited. call, call Yola and just say, Yola, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can, you can totally ask, we'll link it up here. Yeah. You can totally ask Yola. They had a, a, a direct video or a direct, all of the pet food companies have got, I'm sure that they, they've all got the programs now because they're all pushing in that direction. 
a lot of the suppliers, like this notion of Chewy and, and the, the, the big baddie, it's still integration. It's still coming here. What's the core? Like, is that you spoke to the, it's the mindset of scarcity, but we've, on one hand, we've got all this abundance and we're breaking left, right, and center. And on the other hand, part of the problem is an overabundance because we're not thinking strategically about what bits to carve off of this. What bit, would, let's imagine you have your own vet practice. What bit would you let go tomorrow? You work in practice still a little bit, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. What would you carve off? What would you... What do you mean carve off? So get rid of. What would you stop doing in your clinic that you're seeing happening in your clinic just now? Uh, what would you do a shed load more of? What things are not being done that you should start? And what things would you do a bit less of? Because So, yeah. I, I think... So the big things for me, I would lean into auto ship on parasiticides and prescription foods with a partner or with a, or try and set this up yourself it depends right it, it really like that's going to be very individual specific right now there's uh dr dan markwalder is out there and, and I've, I've done a number of lectures with him and stuff and he talks about parasiticides and he took it in house and he has a program where he's got someone who just ships out uh, the first of every week they have a day and they ship out their parasiticides for their own you know, subscription, like single dose for that month. Good. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Or quarterly for, uh, for the multi, uh, multi month, but however, Mm -hmm. you know, I think they, they match it to the client, but, but yes. So they've got this thing and they do the auto ship and they do the billing and it works really, really well for them. For other people, you know, it it makes sense to partner with an industry, whether that is an online pharmacy or whether it's a manufacturer and different manufacturers are rolling up their programs. I really think I don't have a clear turnkey of this is what you should sign up for. I think that there's a lot of people out there shopping, shopping around their programs because I think that industry recognizes the direct to home uh, advantage in keeping people compliant. So I, I don't have one I'm like these people do it right. I think you got to look at your workflow and, and who you're dealing with. But raising that above industry standard, which is just to make the recommendation, and then they're gonna go to a Chewy or some other equivalent to make their purchase. So you've done the hard yards and the persuasion. Someone else takes the bread home. But that's exactly it, right? So my position with this, and so part of it is is pragmatism and part of it is a desire to have uh, optimal care. So if you make the recommendation and you let people go out into the world, they're either going to be non-compliant, meaning they're not going to follow your recommendation. They're going to be non-adherent, meaning they're going to go out and they're going to do it once. And then they're just going to stop doing it after that. Or, you know, in, in all likely cases, they're going to go out and they're going to price shop, which is what I would do if I was a pet owner. And it's what you would do. You know what I mean? Like what name a small business where you go and you buy something that comes in a box and you don't go look and see what it costs on Amazon, you know, or what you can get it for online, especially when it's a significant price point. Like it has become, let's be honest and call a spade a spade. Like that's how people shop and how they think these days. If you don't have some sort of a program that ties them into a uh, an added benefit, meaning this comes from me and I stand behind it and I'll answer your questions and I'll support you if there's problems, then I don't have a value add. Then the only difference in what I sell in a box and what they can buy that same box for online is the price. I've got to get away from that. And that means tying that into my sort of services and support. Do you know, the thing that's jumped into my mind as you were talking there was, you know, I buy almost everything on Amazon and I'll probably go to hell because of it. You know, or some Bezos created version of hell. I can see. Yeah, totally. it from well, I mean, yeah, it's it's a subscription service for hell. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's, it's called Hell Prime, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, but I was, I was thinking about, you know, grocery shopping, like fruit and veg, for example, you know, yeah. you, can, you can get that for a very, very low price. Like at, at Christmas time, I walked into my local big grocery store, supermarket, and through the front door, there's a big display and I, you could get carrots for, and it was 20 pence, so about 30 cents, a bag of carrots. You could get a bag of Brussels sprouts, same price. You could get a bag of parsnips, same price. Did you have parsnips, the, the white carrots? Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my mother-in-law loves, uh, loves a, parsnips. Loves a parsnip. You could get a bag of potatoes, 20 pence. The whole thing, like all of the all of the sides. Oh, yeah, and then you could get a box. Of, you guys don't have mince pies. I've had this question many, many times with my American friends. But like little back box of like they're basically little pastries with okay. with mince like a, a fruits sugary okay. filling. Really yummy. I'll get you some next time you're in the UK around Christmas time. A pound, so a dollar thirty cents. Now you could buy a bird or something in store, a turkey or something like that. I don't know. It's probably going to be five bucks or something like that you could feed your whole family for under ten dollars for christmas day and i thought wow that's that's terrific and terrific on both sides of the meaning of the word to produce food that low there's good and bad there Mm -hmm. but it's a commodity but the place where i think that i jumped in my head you said name somewhere else where you you wouldn't compare on amazon is where i'm buying food Whereas something it's really connected to something that's deep and meaningful to me, i.e., my health. So I'll, I'll tend yeah. to buy something because I, you know, I'm privileged enough to have a disposable income. I can buy organic food, but not just that. I like also buying local organic food, and not just that. I like buying local organic food from the B certified corporation who sends me the personalized blog entry with it which just talks about their work so i can connect in some much deeper way to that thing otherwise it's it's just a zucchini that's ended up in the box no i i agree with that i I think there is an emotional value that people put on supporting small businesses or supporting their local people i do think that that's real can you tell your story regardless of the type of business like low-cost business versus white glove high touch highly concierge business a lot easier. It's a whole lot easier in your white glove, high touch business where you say, these are the things, this is the ideal diet. This is what we can put together. I think in your low cost, you're going to, your suite of services is probably going to be smaller. You're going to be much more conservative in, in what you're offering to people, I think, because you're trying to increase accessibility. I don't think that that's bad. I think you have a higher, you have a higher client number, but you have less recurring re- revenue per person. I think that that's just kind of the nature the nature of, the, of what you're offering. I don't think it's bad. It's just different. Yeah. So certainly moving the bar above in terms of what we offer in terms of services, but also how we tend to communicate the value of those services is an area where you would see us going above industry standards. Yeah. Tell your story. I think you have to. I think especially for your sort of white glove practices, I think where you don't want to go is to say, we offer a physical examination and surgery and everything else is outside of our purview. Now that may be where we end up. Again, a pragmatic view is to say, let's say this all goes down the way that economic forces outside of our industry would like, then we would stay in our lane and that would be a fairly small lane, which is the actual administration of medical services. I think we can be fine if that happens. If that happens, then what you're going to see is probably increased you're going to see increased prices for veterinary visits and for the diagnostics and the things that we do. 
and then you also see uh, scripts and people getting their their medications at other places and you know and ordering online and stuff like that. And I don't think that we'll have. I, I don't think that if you don't integrate these peripheral services like uh, parasiticides, like uh, nutrition for um, ongoing medications, things like that, if you don't integrate them into some sort of a, a supportive package where the pieces talk to each other, where people feel good and they feel you know extra value from getting it from you, then all that stuff goes away. And ultimately, I think that we end up being pretty stripped down in our services where we do the diagnostics, we do the services, we keep minimal inventory on, on hand just for the things that we need to have in the hospital. I think that that drives the cost of our services up higher. I don't see a, a way around that. But again, I'm not a fatalist. You know what I mean? I'm not like, if this happens, everything is lost. I was like, you know what? Then that medicine will, it'll look different. And it, it may be bad. It may, it may be good. I suspect it'll be a mixed bag and there'll be some good things and there'll be some bad things. And that's just kind of how the world is. So I was going to actually ask then maybe a last couple of questions and simpler ones, but are you optimistic for the future, pessimistic for the future? And where does your optimism come from or what would give you the most cause for concern if we don't pay attention? Oh, I'm wildly optimistic. I really am. Change is scary, but with change comes opportunity. I think that the money pouring into our industry is probably really good and we're going to have resources and you know, I think having sort of corporations that get involved that sort of say, hey, you know, we've got labor standards and we're investing back into this profession. I, I think that that's I think that's really good. I think that the radically different ways that we're getting to engage with pet owners is really good. I think that this conversations about spectrum of care, I think that they're good. I think that we're working really hard on increasing diversity in our profession, which we didn't get to talk about. But I think it's really important. If we want to be trusted, if we want to be seen as relevant, we have to look like our pet owners. You know, I mean, that's just a, a big part of it is pet owners need to see themselves in their healthcare professionals if they're going to trust them. And so we've got to keep increasing diversity in our profession. And I think that we're working really hard on it. I think it's a long road. It's, it's hard to go from, you know, from zero diversity like it's you know we're working against we don't have a lot of representation and that makes it harder to attract more people but i look around i'm so proud of our profession i went to you know pride vmc uh had a, had a gathering at a conference i was at man those guys are working their butts off and they are good people doing good stuff and there's other groups that i see a black dvm network uh tier price is is gosh she's amazing she's doing it for the right reasons and she's working hard and so that i just man i'm optimistic buddy it's good to hear. It's good to hear. There's changes of food. May we live in interesting times. <laughs> Heck, don't we? Yeah. Could talk, could talk for hours, man. Thanks for coming on and sharing some of that phenomenal brain you have with us. For anyone listening who wants to engage more, where are the best places to catch you? I mean, if for some reason you've been hiding under a rock and have not already figured this shit out, <laughs> where for that? Those three people, might they catch you? So Facebook is probably still our largest platform. Uh, so Dr. Andy Rourke on Facebook. And then I have a podcast called Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast that we put out every week. If you really like business management, uh, you're like, I like to manage people and set strategies and do business stuff. The Uncharted Veterinary Podcast is my other podcast that I co-host. So I have two podcasts every week. Uh, you can get way more of me than anyone would ever want to have real easily. Okay, so my question, and I, I fully endorse all of those things, have experienced them all and uh, all great value. So 
my question though is are you gonna are you gonna be doing any more goofy videos anytime soon that's where the cone of shame all started out yeah you know we talk about of in this on a strategic planning point you know you and i talk a bit about how do you set priorities and the eisenhower is one of my favorites <laughs> right yeah okay go ahead say more say more we, no no we talk about what's urgent and what's important and we want to do things it's real easy to do things that are urgent and we do things that are urgent and important and we do things that are urgent and unimportant yeah the true value lives in the things that are important and not urgent and it turns out making funny videos that make people laugh is important but it's not urgent. And so I struggle to get it on the calendar and get it done, but it is on the calendar. It doesn't have a date. So it just keeps kind of drifting farther into the void. Uh, fun times, fun times, Andy, fun times. Thanks for coming on, man. It's always a blast to have a conversation with you. And I hope I'm going to, I'm going to see you. I'm hoping to get back on a plane and be in Vegas for Western States very briefly. So it'd be great to catch up. I think the world is opening again. <laughs> Optimism continuing. Please don't I, say that. I, Please I think that's that is like saying, "Gosh, it's quiet on a Friday." Gosh, it's so quiet. Yeah. What are you I, doing? I am optimistic. I'm I'm optimistic. The spring is going to bring a new dawn. Come on, come on, spring. <laughs> come on, spring. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> oh, the jump back three weeks ago. I was like, I'm optimistic. 2022 is going to bring a new dawn, and then I just got COVID, and it was awful. Then. <laughs> I'm reminded of in 2020 at the start, before COVID really started happening, I saw a meme and it was Jean-Luc Picard just sat like basically in the captain's chair of the Enterprise in the next generation yeah. and just with the word looking really stern and concerned. And it was just like, that was report number one. Because <laughs> they were just getting beat up and then COVID happened. And I'm yeah. like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Interesting times, but you know, sure. this too shall pass. You know, I and said so we just enjoy just enjoy really, what you got, you know. Really be personal. Yeah, be happy with you with what you got though. All right, dude. I was gonna say any last thoughts before we hop off. That <laughs> might have been a last thought, but uh, was, I just I screwed it. up by talking right over the top of it. Hey, I've got one last question. Who's your favorite communist? <laughs> My favorite communist. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. We come back full circle. Don't touch that. What we were talking about before the podcast started. (laughs) Who's your favorite comments? Don't even touch that. Uh, There's no good comments coming. Good to talk to you, buddy. See you soon. All right, see ya. Hello. Before you jump off and get on with your day, I just want to say a big thank you to Dr. Andy. Wasn't that a great show? I bet there was something that you can get noodling on in there that can help you with your practice, your career, with some insights. So thank you very much to him for coming on the show again. Now, who would you like to see on the show? Give me a shout on Instagram. You can find me at Dr. Dave Nichol and DM me in the messages. I do like to have a chat there. And of course, don't forget you and that great offer we've got for you over at vetexinternational.com. You can get all of those career benefits for absolutely nothing. So head there now, register your profile, and do yourself a big favor. Until next time from us here at Blunt Dissection, be safe, be well, and be happy.